0: absolutely crucial we have to start by talking about the society and how do we judge the state of our society Do you judge the state of society by the extent to which people are enjoying their lives feeling fulfilled satisfied and otherwise the happiness of the people but then you come to the question how should each person live well obviously each person should try to produce the most good that they can in the world which means the most happiness in the whole of the society not for themselves but for the whole of society
1: hello and welcome to confessions this is the podcast where we talk to interesting clever well-known people and try and work out what their sort of big messages and uh, and find out a little bit about them. And I'm delighted to have today, uh, to be released on Blue Monday, which apparently is the most miserable day of the year, we might talk about that, (laughs) Richard Layard, who, amongst other many things, is the sort of happiness czar. (laughs) That's an invention. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly certainly a man who is an absolute expert on happiness, and what what better day to think about happiness than this. Um, So... Richard Ladd, welcome to Confessions. Not lovely to come.
0: <laughs> In the steps of St Augustine.
1: In the steps of St Augustine, <laughs> yes. We're not going to be asking you about uh, whether you've thieved apples and things like that, like Augustine. What we tend to do, Richard, is we start by uh, talking a little bit about your childhood, your background, your where you come from, and just have a little sort of trajectory from there into into what you became. So perhaps you'd paint a picture for us uh of uh, of your home and where you came from?
0: Well, I grew up in North Oxford. Um, we went there to escape the bombs. Uh, and I was lucky enough, therefore, to go to school, in a school called the Dragon School, which was a progressive school, fairly progressive. But it rooted people to the main uh, public boarding schools, which I'm sure I wouldn't have gone to, uh, but for the war. So I went to Eton. Um, it was very stimulating intellectually, um, I became rather devout. <laughs> did you? Yes. Religious devout. Um, yes. Even though my parents were both Jungian psychologists. So they were, they were all interested and got me interested in the, the inner life. But, of course, they viewed um, the uh, story of Christianity as a myth, which I, I partly accepted that sort of way of looking at it. Um, when I went to Cambridge, I, of course, lost my faith Uh, as people do, Um, I became an active humanist. And I was hoping that humanists would become the sort of secular religion that would inspire uh, the people of the 20th and 21st century. And I think it's been a bit of a disappointment. It's been sort of anti-religious rather than uh, look how we can live well. Um, So um, that's always been at the back of my mind. But I actually became an economist. Um, at Cambridge, I did, I did uh, history and I read Bentham and Mill and I certainly came to believe in the happiness principle. But, uh, uh, and to an extent, that's why I became an economist because it purported to talk about um, what are the conditions which will produce the maximum happiness. It had that curious word, utility, but it meant happiness.
1: Did, did your, was, your, was your home a happy home?
0: My mother was happy and my father was not happy. Um, So there was quite a bit of conflict. Um, And when I was 10, uh, my father started going to monasteries and to study with Jung and various attempts to find salvation. So that was a a source of conflict. Um, And I think school was very helpful to me there because it um, gave me a sort of safe place outside the home.
1: Was your uh, parental Jungian uh, thing, was that something against which you sort of re- I mean, it, your work isn't very sympathetic to to that sort of uh, um, psychobamily <laughs> type of- Well,
0: um, I mean, my dad was very interested in mythology. He'd been an anthropologist. Um, So he was therefore very interested in dreams and how they related to the archetypes and so on. Uh, My mother was much more practical, uh, quite like a modern psychotherapist, quite frankly. But my dad was very charismatic, um, and he made people feel incredibly important. Um, And he certainly helped, you know, dozens of people that I came to know because he was rather open in his relationships with his patients. So um, I, I, do, I, don't, I don't think that um, there's a huge conflict. I think, I don't know what, what my dad would think about cognitive behavioral therapy, but I think he would think anything which got people on the right road was the right thing. If it and, works, it's fine. Yes, and he very much believed... Um, That people had within them, um, the 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 um, the, the sources of their own salvation. Um, So he he wasn't he was absolutely not the Freudian who makes you go over and over um, the awful things that happened to you and somehow um, escape from them in that way. He he was he was he was also, as you know, Jungians are. More forward-looking.
1: Is it is it right that uh, your father once tried to take his own life? There's, yes, a, there's a story yeah. about yeah, that. Yep, he did.
0: This was before I came along. I see. I see. <laughs> and, I, and before he met my mum, I think my mum sort of saved him in a way.
1: I see. So that practical, that the, her practical uh, happiness. <laughs> <was probably laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she wasn't a therapist to... at that
0: stage. but right. she, she was a very positive
1: person. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so, so your time at your time at Eton—I mean, going away to school—that that that was that was something that you that you uh, you enjoyed. I did,
0: I did, I loved it I, because I loved the games especially, uh-huh. which uh, football, which, well, football, cricket, tennis, I was better better football, and um, I think I loved the team aspect of it as well as the the simple physicality.
1: When was it, When did it become obvious to you what you were going to do with your life?
0: Well, I remember so vividly uh, a talk with my closest friend Kit about you know what we were going to try and do, um, and I do remember saying I wanted to be a social reformer, and I do also remember uh, my mother talking about Sydney and Beatrice Webb, and I always had this, a, a sort of idea that you know that, that there were ways in which one could help to improve society, and that's what I wanted to be involved with.
1: And what did you read at, at Cambridge? I did history at Cambridge,
0: which was, I think, quite a good, quite a good background. Um, but um, I then uh, became a school teacher and went to the uh, London School of Economics in the evenings to educate myself in sociology. And as a result of that, I, be- I was asked to become the senior research officer for the Robbins Committee on Higher Education, and Robbins was from LSE. So then I went back to LSE, I was invited back, and I realized that I absolutely had to know some economics because I, I really had no intellectual framework for thinking about priorities. And that was the great virtue of economics and the attraction of it, that it, it's explicitly concerned, you know, with how do you uh, choose one thing as being more important than another? How do you set the priorities? Well, in terms of you know, which gives the most benefit for the uh, for these cost, and uh, I thought that was a pretty impressive idea. So,
1: so you, you you certainly now have and have had for a while a, a sort of scientific cast of mind that would be something that's uh, important to you, a sort of a, a, an empirical uh, approach to. Would that be fair? Would that be fair yes, to say? Yes. Yes, but that was something I acquired later. Yes, uh, and I'm looking back.
0: Um, I am shocked at uh, the, uh, the, well, the division between the cultures that was there, the scientific and the, the literary culture.
1: C.P. Snow. C.P. Snow.
0: Um, and the fact that none of us knew what a correlation was. So when I decided to become an economist, I was really up for um, doing it properly, doing the maths. i had never been interested in maths before that because it never, never applied to anything that interested me um, but I could see that economics was about quantities and so I threw myself into it learned maths. And-
1: when you were in Cambridge was there a sort of political I mean you were at Cambridge at a time when you know there was sort of spies and, you know there was uh there was a sense of uh you know uh, sort of left-wing fervent in Cambridge at at, at 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 that time. Is that is that? No, is no, that, no, 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 not no. I was there from fifty
0: four till um, fifty seven. Right. As an undergraduate, um, it was a rather non-political time until uh-huh. Suez, uh-huh. and then Suez radicalized all of us. We all joined the Labour Party, and. Uh, We've all, all my friends, have remained members of the Labour Party ever since.
1: And is that was was, was that a, a politics that was sort of in keeping with where you'd come from? As,
0: yes. As well. No, my parents were Labour. And actually, when I was at Eton, uh, we were all, this is in the time of the Attlee government, we were all strong supporters of, of the Labour Party, as was the headmaster of Eton at the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there we are. Yeah. So. Now we're beginning to come to you as a, as a, an economist, as someone who's a social reformer, as you said you wanted to do. What tell, Describe me something of your work at that, early on.
0: Well, I had to do the, the regular economics training and um, I was coming from education. So um, I got interested in inequality and the role of skills inequality, which I'm still very, very concerned about and terribly distressed at our absolute failure to provide um, non-graduates with skills that will make them feel useful in life and get them a decent living. Um, I also worked very much on unemployment, uh, particularly from 1980 when it became really high. So. I think that with my, my colleague, Steve Nicol, um, we made quite a big contribution, actually, to understanding why unemployment had got so high and stayed so high in the 1980s in so many European countries, um, and how that was uh, related to the fact that we allowed long-term unemployment to develop and paid people um, to keep alive. <laughs> without doing anything, without putting an effort into getting them reintegrated in the world of work. I became strongly involved in the movement for, and and we we formed a a, a physical organization to push for this, the idea that people ought not to um, be left without work for more than a year, they ought to be guaranteed a job in return for that they had to accept the fact that they couldn't continue to live on benefits um, if they turned down a range of jobs. Uh, and I still think that that is a basic principle that should be applied worldwide. Um, we pushed for it, and I think it had quite a big effect um, in Britain um, and, and ultimately in Germany and the Hartz reforms, which have made German unemployment one of the lowest in the world. So I think that was a very satisfying Period of my working life. And so,
1: th- so there are sort of like it was. It was designing an economic system that that didn't encourage people to stay on benefits, but yes. actually pushed them into work. Yeah, sounds like it yes. sounds like
0: a modern Tory idea. Uh, but, but the evidence <clears throat> is, and this is where happiness comes in, um that people who have not chosen to 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 take advantage of uh, of jobs, if they are put in a position where they have to. Um, are happier than than before uh, because I think that you know, unemployment is an absolute killing experience and people just get depressed and they just can't imagine things could be better. And uh, it's uh, up to society to have structures which put them in a position encourage which people is better. To en- yeah. Encourage
1: people into work. Yeah. I, I could be talking to Ian Duncan-Smith here with uh, listening to this.
0: Well, I think this is non-party, quite frankly. Okay. Um, the, the the people who bought it, uh, I must say, were mainly the Labour Party. And Tony Blair bought it. And this was the basis of the so-called New Deal for young people, which was then extended to older people
1: um, after Labour came to power. And presumably, you know the figures for this, but presumably, if there is a sort of way of encouraging people economically into work, if, if to withdraw their benefits at some point and to uh, and, and to provide them with greater opportunities. There will be those people who slip through the, the net, as it were, on this, and f- those for whom they don't end up getting jobs and their benefits are being reduced. And No, you have a work
0: guarantee, and you offer them community work um, if, they, if, if you can't help them find uh, quite real work. But um, there's, there's this very interesting evidence that people d- doing in these community projects for hardly any more... Uh, money than they would have got on benefit are a lot happier. It's not finding a workforce on the cheap, is it? No, no, no. People should be paid the rate for the job, um, uh, but uh, you know, the community work is going to be on the minimum
1: wage. Happiness is the thing that we really want to talk about, here. and sure. that's what that's what you've you've spent the last twenty years perhaps writing about a happiness, thinking about happiness. So perhaps let's let's just take it. This is this is Blue Monday. This this is being released on, which is apparently the most miserable day of the year. That's I an I think that's a commercial invention. I imagine that's totally true. Well, there is that thing about. I mean, lots of people, lots of people die post Christmas. A lot of people sort of hang on for Christmas. One of the things that that it, uh, in my in my profession you see is a spike in uh, in. In work at the crematorium Uh, and it's almost like people hang on for Christmas and then after Christmas they Mm -hmm. um, anyway whatever that you're you're smiling wryly at me as if but whether that's a myth or not today couldn't be a better day mythologically or otherwise to talk about happiness so what what makes us happy
0: well we've got lots of evidence on this Um, and if you take the population uh, and you ask them how happy they are, you, you find there's a huge spread, and you, we all know this from the people we meet. Um, so if you're trying to explain what factors account for that huge spread, uh, the number one factor is mental health. Uh, just a very simple question, have you ever been diagnosed with anxiety or depression? Um, this is the biggest single factor explaining. Physical health is also important, of course, especially in old age. But the other really key things are human relationships. Uh, so the, the, the one that comes out very strongly is in work. Uh, the quality of work is very important for people, and of course having work if you want it. Um, the relationship in the family, having a partner and having a good relationship with the partner, and then life in the community. Do you feel people that you meet around you are friendly or threatening? So much to um, talk about there. So income... You haven't
1: mentioned money, yes. Well, I haven't
0: mentioned money because money <clears throat> explains only 2% of the variation that I started by describing. It, it's really remarkable. And I think we absolutely have to have a completely different concept of what is deprivation. Um, the, the, the sort of class-based definition of deprivation is not just not up to the job. If we're talking about making... People happier. Um, We we have to have much more attention to the inner life, helping people to deal with their their their, their inner terrors and and uh, stresses, Um, and we have to have much more attention to social life, and you know that's why I'm so depressed that when there's some more money being spent in Britain now. It's assumed that we should spend it on the physical infrastructure, even though we have, to some extent, dismantled the social infrastructure, the community services, youth services, mental health, child mental health services, and so on, um, even to a lower level than we had 10 years ago. This is such a a mistaken set of priorities.
1: Um, Am I right in thinking that there's uh, there's, there's some sort of figure over which... In terms of income but below which you really are miserable because of lack of money but over which you know if you double your income or you you, you it doesn't really make all that much difference to your happiness is there a sort of figure people sometimes talk about a, a figure that you know that, that, where it there's, drops no, there's off there's no in terms exact of
0: figure but the, the basic point is that uh, an extra pound uh, makes more difference to the happiness of a poor person than a rich person in fact it's a very big difference so uh, the difference which it makes to a poor, poor poor person is 10 times the difference that it makes to someone who is 10 times richer than that poor person. So it's a, a, a very big uh, falling off in the value of money uh, uh, according to how rich
1: you are. And why is it that governments are more interested in, well, less interested in spending money on what you call so- social infrastructure. Why, why, why is this Why it happening? It's partly a madness of the um,
0: financial markets, because if the government's going to borrow money, uh, they want to persuade the financial markets that there's a return on it, which will enable the government to service the debt. Um, and they think that if it's a physical structure, somehow it has a return, whereas if it's social, they don't realise it has, but uh, I mean, one of the most striking things is the huge amount of saving resulting from all these social uh, investments. Uh, if you start with mental health, uh, we've been able to show that the the program, which uh, was started by the National Health Service um, in 2008, called improving access to psychological therapy. Uh, and now seeing 600,000 people a year, that has saved much more money than it has cost because if people are depressed, they don't work, uh, they get disability benefit, they don't pay taxes. Um, if you can help them, of course, the point of helping them is to make them happier, but it <laughs> it is also important from a public finance point of view if you help them, uh, you save all that money that you were spending on their inactivity.
1: But if if money doesn't, if money isn't all that important to to, to people, um, and their sort of social conditions are, there's one thing as a you, you, as a policymaker you can't make much difference towards is things like finding a partner or or your. No, know, I think that's is, is completely that... wrong. Okay, that's totally wrong. I mean, if you have a
0: good educational system. Um, that produces decent human beings, uh, they will find partners and they will tend to stick with them. And um, we have so downplayed, we used to pay more attention to the development of character, as it was called. Um, But now, because of the the measurability of exam results uh, and the judging of schools entirely on the basis of exam results, the, the school curriculum has become so distorted towards preparation for whatever the test or exam is that um, they've just becoming increasingly exam factories without time to devote to the development of character
1: uh, and all that so um, you surprise and delight me in saying this mm-hmm. you do because before we haven't met before, and I haven't had this chance to have this conversation with you but i I always imagined you to be more, because of your, I guess, empiricism and, you know, uh, the the way in which I I imagined you to do economics, everything was, unless you could test it, it didn't exist, is what I imagined you. And you're saying something very different here, which I'm glad to hear. Well, partly that, but I think also we
0: can measure this. Probably the only way that we'll get a change in schools um, is if schools do measure the happiness of their children. Um, and this knowledge becomes public and parents choose schools on the basis of which they're always trying to do anyway. Will my, my Johnny be happy in the school? Now we give them some evidence on, on how the school is doing, not whether the children in the school are happy, but how much happier they become or less happier having gone to the school. Um, so I think there is a role for empiricism when we're talking about the inner life—that—that <laughs> uh, that in a way is perhaps the most important thing. But isn't about, it, that I would like to come out of this discussion we're having? That, I suppose that we, there's a sort of tension. Study, we can yes. study the inner life, and we can not only, you know, as external people study the inner life, but we ourselves can 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 reflect on and and, and manage our inner
1: lives. On the one hand, part of my—we share the anxiety about schools being overtested. Uh, pupils be tested, the idea that everything is sort of uh league tableized and, and all this sort of stuff and when we move that into the inner life part of me goes no no that's the one place where we were free <laughs> from all yeah, of uh, that uh, testing uh, uh. and now you're even wanting to apply this sort of you know you know, well, how are you on the happiness index? Top ten happy? It's like you're even measuring this, and that was where we were free from. <laughs> well, I'm
0: afraid it's a fact that unless we we um, do apply um, f- fairly, fairly um, rigorous thought to that side of our lives as well, we're not going to um, overcome the bias that's introduced by the testing regime for exam results. So we will just have exam schools increasingly. Um, but that's not the main point I want to make about mm. schools. But I, I do think that the, 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 the we have to use the word well-being in schools. As you know, we can't say happiness, even though the parents say, is your hap- child happy at school? but. Um, apparently, people. Why
1: is that word? Why is that word
0: not? Uh... It, it's very peculiar. Uh, people can uh, are okay with the adjective, but they're not okay with the noun. They can't. They cannot believe that happiness could be a, a, an adequate objective. It's got
1: to be struggle. Isn't there something about happiness which seems to just a little bit thin as an idea? Compared, I mean, this is maybe what people have in mind when they're worrying about happiness it's
0: extraordinary isn't it but if i said are you are you happy in your marriage that wouldn't be thought to be a thin question about your marriage it would be the most important single question that could be asked about your marriage is your child happy at school that would be thought to be certainly one of the most important questions you could ask about your child correct um are you happy in your work one of the most important questions you could ask about that whole massive chunk of your life. So it's absolutely not thin. And nobody thinks it's thin when they use the adjective. But when they use the noun, they, for some weird reason, I think it's to do with advertising, you know, banana is happiness or whatever. Um, it, uh, it, it's difficult I to make the case. That. And therefore we use the word well-being.
1: When I talk about thin, do we just pursue that just for a moment? Mm. Because so many of the... A sort of cultural heroes, I guess, uh, are not happiness. Happiness, if it comes, is a sort of byproduct of what they do, oh, yes. and 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 not any sort of aim of it. So, or and 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 actually, you know, many people are not happy, but they may be great or something, Van Gogh, or you know. So their 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 sort of life aims are beauty or truth or goodness or something like that. That this happiness as an aim. Well, first of all, it feels a little bit self-absorbed, perhaps. Mm. I mean, unhappiness is terrible, but happiness is an aim. It feels self-absorbed. But secondly, it sort of feels like a byproduct of a life well-lived rather than a uh, an aim in itself. Well, I don't know how you would define well-lived. <laughs> yes, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> That's
0: that. an extraordinary phrase. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Because it begs almost every question. It
1: absolutely does, um, yes. No,
0: I, This is perhaps the most important bit of this discussion we're having, isn't it? I think that that it is absolutely crucial to get uh, clear that we have to start by talking about the society and how do we judge the state of our society. And I'm saying that we judge the state of society by the extent to which people are enjoying their lives, feeling fulfilled, satisfied, and otherwise... The happiness of the people the, 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 the criterion for a good society is that it, 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 it offers uh, the, the route to happiness to everybody, but then you come to the question how should each person live well obviously each person should try to produce the most good that they can in the world, which means the most happiness in the whole of the society not for themselves but for the whole of society and that that is the ethic, you know, which was offered by the 18th century enlightenment, that you should live so as to try and create the most happiness that you can? It's the essence of utilitarianism, so, as you say. What, what Jeremy Bentham said, um, and uh, John Stuart Mill. And I think that's absolutely right. So does that require reflection on happiness? It requires a huge amount of reflection on the happiness of other people, and what, what's important for them. What are they feeling? So I think that the single biggest thing which would improve our society if people spent more time thinking about how other people are feeling, not how they're performing, but how they're feeling. Um, and that's the biggest part of creating as much happiness as you can in the world, is creating it for other people. But, of course, you have to take care of yourself, and you, you also will benefit from the fact That trying to live um, and create benefit for others is one of the main ways of experiencing happiness yourself. So, so the the issue of purpose becomes central. What is your purpose in life? If your purpose in life is to create as much happiness uh, as possible, you yourself will benefit. You you mustn't do it because in in a sort of day to day sense because you'll benefit. Don't give money to the, the beggar because you'll feel better, do it because you want to benefit uh, the beggar. But uh, it is a fact that people who create benefit for others uh, have happier lives on balance than others. And and th- that's the sense in which I'm arguing for it. So then come back to the byproduct, in the sense, and which John Stuart Mill also believed in, that happiness was a for the individual was a byproduct of trying to create happiness for others. And I think that's the central idea.
1: There may be those who say that this is a very fortunate uh, universe that you have uh, created for yourself in which doing good and being happy are aligned. But what happens... Not perfectly, of course. OK, well, this is a philosophical question to start with and so forth. But if, as it were, um, I'm the sort of person that what makes me happy is not doing good at all. Um, either uh, simply doing nothing and staying on the sofa and watching telly or um, or actually actively. I mean, there are some people who it doesn't seem lo- logically impossible for whom uh, things that make them happy are things that are not good at all. Mm. This is my problem. Is there, are, there are times no, when... No, but if a sagi-
0: sagist is not following the rule of trying to create the most happiness no not no no, no, possible no, no no in the world no so, No, no, it's not so, so I mean that's contrary to the rule so why is it a problem
1: well the the problem it seems to me is that is that there may well be times when being good doesn't really the the, the task of being good for the individual isn't really captured by the sort of the whole idea of spreading happiness in the world It's like there are there are other things that are that are Somehow weightier than sort of smiley happy uh, society. That there's that, there's sort of bigger things. There's 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 stuff about the truth. There's stuff about beauty. There's stuff about goodness that isn't just about are we all sort of smiley happy people?
0: Well, I think smiley happy is not really the, 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 the right I'm, thing. I'm being i I'm being, I'm, a, I'm being deliberately deep, facetious. It, it's a deep deep experience, isn't it? Um, of, of, of contentment and meaning in your life um, that we're talking about. And I don't think it's at all easy t- to think of anything else that um, makes more sense than that. Um, I mean, let me make one other point. Um, I mean... If, if we're trying to think about what is the right thing to do, there can't be lots of lots of objectives. In the end, there the can only be one objective where we compare the claims of different things which we might do. You, you can't, you can't you can't rank your actions
1: um, except against
0: a single criterion.
1: I know, but aren't you just just introducing a a framework that just doesn't apply to human beings there? I mean, our our desires are just not rankable in the way that you want them to be. Well, people make choices, and they are implicitly
0: doing some ranking.
1: Is that right? Yes. I mean, I mean, of
0: course, we don't think about it explicitly most of the time. And the slightly modified version of what I'm advocating is is, uh, the way Aristotle put it, that you just have to have the right habits... Um, that you, you don't act on mainly on calculation, of course. You act on yeah. the basis of habits. And I'm saying in that context that your habit should be to think about how you are affecting the feelings of the people who you
1: necessarily uh, are in touch with or people that you could be touching with. And, and I agree with that completely. I, unobject, not only unobjectionable, but, mm-hmm. but well, one of the things you just said in a course of describing happiness there was meaning. Mm. which was, that's a very interesting thing, obviously, to me as a, as a priest. Yeah. Um, what, what, how would you describe that sort of
0: uh, meaning, meaning mean, purpose type by of meaning, thing? meaning, I mean that you are thinking about how it contributes to what we were just talking about. I but see. That, so. that's, that's, the, that's the most obvious and reliable source of meaning. Now, of course, uh, people get meaning from um, playing the moon Salata as well as they can. Um, and that's happiness to them. Then maybe they play it and, and only play it when there's nobody else in the house. Uh, that's still meaningful. Um, so, I mean, I think that um, uh, meaning is, that, is that an important route to happiness either that you generate directly and, and quote selfishly for yourself or that you create for other people. But you've got to be very careful with meaning. I mean, Adolf Hitler had a very strong sense of meaning yes. in his life. Yeah. So I, I utterly deplore the the practice which we get from some uh, of uh, of the colleagues. I'll, I'll not name them, <laughs> who say that meaning is, could could be an ultimate objective. It can't be. Yeah. Um, it's a route to the objective, and it, that only includes. Decent sources of meaning.
1: Uh, I suppose uh, what I was trying to sort of get at a little bit here is that this sort of uh, hedonic calculus that's being made here, this sort of utilitarianism here, mm-hmm. but, um, is is a very uh, is a very earthbound one, as it were. Put it in explicitly religious terms, yes. it's a flat one, um, and uh, so, and meaning often references some sense of transcendence, something, uh, some sense of a, a purpose that's beyond uh, our uh, sharing of happiness, but that's that's you, you. You're not very happy with any of that, even though. You're talking about my, <laughs> my 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 views on that.
0: I mean, I do think. Let's do ethics first. I mean, I I, I think that um, what happens um, happens because of cause and effect. So the past w- was was preordained, but, but our thinking is part of the process that will will preordain the future. So in that sense, we have freedom for the future. The past has happened. And then how do we think about this whole process? I mean, the past was determined by the laws of physics, basically. Um, I, I do feel, p- personally, uh, and this may reflect my religious upbringing, but I I can't think other than that there is some purpose in the universe, uh, and that gives me comfort and that there is um, some um, well there's a causal reason <laughs> uh, but it's it's more than that for what 's happened, and therefore one should accept what 's happened, and one should c- celebrate um, the good parts of what have happened and 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 Remain mystified by the bad parts of what's happened. Um, So, in that sense, I'm not against um, people grappling with the the biggest issue of of you know what what does it mean um, our life. I mean, obviously, each of us is the project of a very random process, (laughs) extraordinarily random. Running of the sperm into the right place or the wrong place, um, so all of that is ultimately determined by the laws of physics, um, and I, and I'd, I I personally feel a need to take some view about that, but not everybody does. So I I I, I am very keen, and we haven't got on to the movement action for happiness, but I, I'm very keen as as chairman of that not to think that um everybody needs to have a view about the the
1: you're nervous the the nature
0: of the universe so they can they can lead good lives and many people can lead satisfying lives without one
1: yes one of the things that you're a champion of is cbt is is cognitive behavioral therapy Correct. as a as a as a means of 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 helping people be happy and this this fits i can see with your uh, and i share it your estimation of aristotle and your belief in character and all that sort of virtue ethics meets cbt stuff that 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 forms a package i can see how that that sort of works my problem though with with cbt and perhaps we should describe it a little bit i mean it's 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 a sort of behavioristic approach to the inner no, life. No, would that be? No, would that quite, be right?
0: Is no, that... okay. Well, C is cognitive and B is behavioral. Yes. So, so it, it's uh, the cognitive part um, is the belief that um, if you, well, belief A that there is, of course, a, a circle of causation um, running from thoughts to feelings and back from feelings to thoughts. Yes. Um, but if you want to affect people's feelings. It's easier to break into the circle through their thoughts. Um, and so what CBT is saying is that if you look at your thoughts, um, sort, of, sort of from outside, you can see how many of them are, are, are negative, um, how some of them are a bit crazy, um, and. Uh, can just be left on one side as things that happen that go through your mind, but don't have to be you, and that you can choose, to some degree, what what you what your what thought what you're going to think. You take some
1: sort of action you, with regard you can, to your you thoughts. Can, you
0: can take charge of your thoughts, and that will lead you to feel better and to act better, um, better for yourself and. Hopefully for the world. But and when you say I, I take would, would charge say that, of your thoughts, sorry, just this
1: yeah. is I'm, I'm, this is this is rather important. When you say take charge of your thoughts, you you mean that there's certain sorts of things that you can do, or certain sort of repetitions, or certain sorts of things that you can. If you think certain things, you must stop thinking about them and you think about other things and yes. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. Uh,
0: well, See, my problem with this I mean, is I mean, that you can do you can develop good mental habits that that deal with what many people experience as being trapped in a cycle of thoughts and feelings from
1: which they can't escape. The sort of Freudians would, would look at this and go, but you're not really dealing with the sort of inner problems, you're just dealing with the symptoms of the problems. Well, a
0: lot of medicine
1: deals with the symptoms. It's absolutely true. It doesn't deal with the
0: causes, it deals with the symptoms. No,
1: absolutely. And so and, and if accept... you can, if
0: you can have a happy life dealing with the symptoms... I'm all for that.
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. So if that's even if that's based on, I, I don't quite want to say based on a lie, but based on a denial of the complexity of one's inner life, it's just as long as the symptoms are not bothering you, the inner life can be as tumultuous as. You can make space for a, a rich inner life. I, I I got into
0: this. Let's let's discuss um, the NHS. Um, After I wrote my first book on happiness, I thought, how could I, what can I best do to increase happiness in Britain? And uh, uh, As I mentioned, uh, uh, the research showed mental health was the most important single problem to deal with. And people with depression or anxiety disorders who weren't essentially suicidal were not being able to get any form of psychological treatment. And so we set up this service, the NHS set up this service. Um, which um, provides all of the treatments recommended by NICE. So it's it's not me advocating CBD. It's NICE uh, identifying all the treatments for which there is evidence of success um, in terms of of people's self-reported states of mind. Um, So, these are not only CBT at all, this includes interpersonal therapy and it includes brief Freudian therapy, psychodynamic therapy, Uh, it includes certain forms of family therapy and couple therapy, Um, and of course it includes for children um, treatments for conduct problems including the training of parents so it, it, but the job I'm, of nice I, I'm, is to... I'm, I'm not a, a cbt maniac no no, no, no i understand
1: <laughs> but the job of nice is to triage scarce resources or or you know it's to triage resources that there's only limited so you're not going to get nice even if three years of freudian analysis is really what you really need nice is not going to say that because that's ridiculously expensive now i'm I'm well, not they, an economist, so no, I just. Well, nice
0: provide some very expensive treatments, physical treatments, unbelievably expensive. So I mean, it's 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 the failure of um, these uh, psychoanalytical um, treatments to develop an evidence base that makes makes them not recommended.
1: Yes, yes I mean, I think this is where we. This is there's the sort of loop that we. That we 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 perhaps sort of fundamentally f- haven't found our way through I'm not an evidence based type of person, okay, and i in fact i find I'm suspicious of evidence based people mm. insofar as I think they're always trying to. League tableise my experience. So yeah, schools, and uh, that's what I that's what I sort of feel there was a, there's, there was a sort of there's a mathematical matrix that's being placed upon uh, what my experience is that actually is just can't be captured by this. So we're going to disagree about that. Um, so it doesn't seem to me at all surprising that Freudian psychoanalysis doesn't uh, its success doesn't reveal itself on a on an evidence-based matrix. And it doesn't feel any surprise to me that an organisation like NICE would have to, triaging economic resources, would have to say, what is the evidence base for this and for that, and we want the cheapest Mm. one. Mm. And CBT, which deals with the symptoms, is just a way of, is, is, is a good way of sort of giving quick results, but whether it actually addresses some of the deeper needs of the human soul, I suppose that's where I'm coming from.
0: Well, when we're talking about these symptoms, I mean, that sounds terribly superficial, but it means what people are experiencing. Yes. I mean, the symptoms are not <laughs> something superficial. Yes. Like that's have, that's have you a got fair a, point. Have you got a tick or something? The symptoms are, are you in despair? Yes, I uh, understand. Are you seriously saying that you know, if a treatment no, some, no, no, I'm 10 not, sessions no. No. can bring a person out of despair
1: that uh, that's trivial i think that's shocking if yeah, yeah, you're says right. that. you're completely right you're completely right you're completely right to say it's trivial that that uh, that, 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 that that would be the, that's that's wrong of me to say that i, I just i'm I, not sure you said that but anyway. no 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 but if but uh, but, uh, but there's a part of me that there's a part of me that does go in that direction so you're quite right to chastise me for it if we found a pill to make us happy if we found if we found something like that would we would you be content for us to take it
0: I always answer this question by a forecast that there's absolutely no doubt that everybody would take it.
1: And does that not if also... If you had no side effects. I understand that. But does that not also somehow diminish the human project insofar as, uh, for you, the human project is being happy uh, in this this fanciful example that we've raised, a pill is is the answer to, can be the answer to being happy. So you've sort of given the meaning of life over to pharmaceutical companies, potentially, in this example. Well, it's unlikely to be. I agree, unlikely, but it's a philosophical
0: question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the fact is, people do, or they always do, and they always will, um take substances if they make them feel better um, and hopefully they'll stop taking them if they have some bad side effect
1: but, uh, but uh, they'll uh, still
0: have to lead their lives, it's, just, it's not that they're just going to then, then sit on the chaise long
1: um, I mean, but sitting on the chaise, but if, you, but if you could be happy sitting on the chaise longs and if you could be, make everybody else happy by sitting on the chaise longs, you surely wouldn't want that as a, as a, um, as a, as, as a future for the human race The basic point is that
0: you wouldn't be happy sitting on the chaise long doing nothing, um, for long. Um, uh, And when you say you're not happy for something to be the future of a human race, it's because you have a view of what people are like. And you and I know that we like challenges. People uh, (laughs) don't do nothing. They, uh, you know, they do... uh, at, at the very least, they do a crossword puzzle or they, they, they're doing something all the time. They're creating. They're, we have an urge to create. We have an urge to take on challenges. That's, that's, that's the stuff of life.
1: And it's, and it's the stuff of enjoying life. So if you, if you were, um, if you, you're back advising government again, where, where we are now, what are, the, what, what are the most important things in order to create a, a happier society?
0: Well, still a huge improvement in mental health, yeah. um, especially children. This is going slowly. Uh, it, it could go a lot faster. Um, so I'm very keen, we're talking practical politics, to have a separate budget within the NHS for mental and physical health, and have the mental health budget growing twice as fast in real terms as the physical health budget. That's what I want to, <laughs> to
1: see yeah. decided this year, if we could. What, uh, and um, it, it doesn't seem much prospect of that, does there? I mean, I, I would like to see that as well. But well, it,
0: it, it's, it's a fairly sm- small amount of money being shifted from physical to mental health, relative to the size of the whole budget. Um, But it would make such a huge difference to the well-being of the whole population if we could do it. Because this is so every family has got uh, someone with a mental health problem um, who is not, in most cases, getting the help they need. It's it's deeply shocking. If you take people with depression, anxiety disorders, um, only a third um, are getting any form of treatment. Well, I mean, if that was true for diabetes or something, there would be an outrage. Yeah. And, and these, are, these are more serious conditions from the point of view of how people feel and experience their lives than diabetes. So um, it, it, it's it's a complete uh, disgrace. And within that, most of them are getting antidepressants, which in at least half the cases are contrary to nice recommendations because they're only meant to be recommended for very serious cases of depression or certain anxiety disorders but because the the, the GPs have got to do something they hand them out so uh, it's a totally disgraceful situation then I I would uh, make sure that uh, we push forward with the um, making of well-being as one of the explicit goals of schools um, that we help them to uh, um, in particular, teach life skills in an evidence-based way. Um, I've been involved in developing a, a program called Healthy Minds for secondary schools. We need similar ones with foolproof curricula and materials that can be used by any teacher, um, provided they're trained. So we need to spend some money <laughs> on training teachers to deliver these programs. Interestingly, we have had a progress in this area. We've We've made... Um, they, now, they now call it relationship, sex, and health education um, compulsory. But we haven't said how much there should be. We should be at least once, one hour a week. Um, I, I, w- I would go for that. It's not hugely expensive, but just, just think. None of, none of these things are hugely expensive. Um, but just think of the difference that you could make um, to knife crime if you had um, helped children, um, both in school, to develop p- purposeful things to do uh, rather than getting gangs, um, and also provided those who have behavioral problems with proper treatments on the NHS under the age of 10. Uh, I mean, the idea that putting them in prison for longer is the solution. Very expensive, Continuum. we can save the money uh, by dealing with the problem before it emerges. Um, I would, uh, and, and these are actually the recommendations of the all-party parliamentary group on well-being economics that I'm, I'm giving you now. Um, I, I would um, make sure that we give every young person a decent transition into the world of work so they feel wanted. Uh, and this is not just a matter of economics, but it's partly a matter of economics in the sense that we make them more productive but partly a matter of psychology that they feel they've got something to offer by getting a a proper apprenticeship for as near to everybody as we possibly can who doesn't go to university Um, this has been an absolutely again a national disgrace the way in which this area has been messed around with Um, and we absolutely have to give that some priority, That that will cost more money um, but also save a lot on unemployment and so on. Um, and then of course, we have to deal with loneliness um, and and physical care in old age um, by restoring the social care arrangements to at least where they were before, but also making well-being much more of a priority uh, for architects um, and for Local government, which will mean local government has have some money to run community facilities, old people's centres, youth clubs, all these things uh, that create a, a fabric of society where people feel
1: wanted. Do you have anything to say, as this group had anything to say about advertising? I, I haven't been my point of about, advertising. About, about advertising is a machine for the generation of unhappiness.
0: Yes, of course it is. It um, <clears throat> makes people want things they didn't previously want. Exactly right. Um... I would tax. I would tax uh, all advertising that is not simply informative.
1: I, I always feel that that, that that the one thing that advertising is the sort of pernicious influence of advertising is that you know you can have a perfectly happy life and you watch the telly and then you suddenly are being told by this advertisement that you think your life is happy. But actually, mm. what you really need is yeah. this, this and this. And yeah. actually, it, it it poisons you in yeah. order to get you to go to the shopping centre to buy more stuff. Okay. And that seems to be a deeply pernicious influence. Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I wonder, are we a happier society now than we used to be? We are, actually. Are we?
0: Britain is. Um, some countries are not. I mean, America's not happier than it was... Uh, 50, 60 years ago. Um, in Britain, we don't really have data going back more than about 50 years, but we are slightly happier. Is all that stuff uh, um, about
1: wartime solidarity and uh, community? Well, well if, if we, I think if we had those
0: data, it, we, it, we might be similar to where we were um, after the war, um, but uh, we don't have the data. West Germany, we have data Um, for the last 50 years, they're no happier in spite of huge economic success. Uh, India is getting less happy. These are figures from the World Gallup Poll that you can find in the World Happiness Reports each year. Um, But China's the most interesting one because, of course, China is the the economic miracle of the world. Um, And in China, they're no happier now than they were 25 years ago. It went down and then it's come up again. So I think the, the, the basic lesson, of course, which we are talking about all the time, is that economic growth is not a guarantee of increased happiness. And to yeah. ide- identify income and happiness is a, a huge error. The, the mistake the Chinese made, as, as so many development economists, just not paying enough attention to the either the generation of new communities as people move into the cities, or, or the maintenance of existing communities. and and, and, and raising productivity locally, this has been a huge mistake.
1: As an economist, I'm, you know, one of the narratives that people tell about the, I guess, the post-war period, but it could go back longer than that, of course, is that uh, what you see with the development of capitalism is uh, an increasing individualism, is that people are, people are more mobile, move around more, and because of that, they are, it's, it's harder to build communities when people are so socially mobile, the stable rooted communities. Is there anything about that analysis, that picture that feeds into your work on happiness? Very much so, yes.
0: I'm not an expert on development, but I, I do think the great challenge for development now um, is to incorporate community life and sense of belonging um, into um, the, the concepts of economic development and not just go for income. Yeah. Um, I think that, 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 that's a, a, a really massive challenge. I think economists can make a, a, a real contribution to that. Um, and one of the most hopeful things is this development of empirical <laughs> experimental work uh, for which people won the, the last Nobel Prize. Um, at Harvard, where you really, you really do, we need thousands of experiments to see what really produces a, a happy pattern of living um, in all kinds of situations, both developing countries and our
1: own country. Is there something about, I mean, one of the things that's highly prized amongst uh, people who uh, uh social policymakers is social mobility. Now, social mobility often pl- implies geographical mobility, that people, as it were, climb the ladder yes. by moving around the world, now, certainly moving from a sort of poor town in the north, as it were, to London or something like that. Sure, sure. Now, that elision of social mobility and geographical mobility, it seems to me, often creates rootless, unhappy people. And that's... A, it, a, that. I mean, I want to know if there's any experimental basis for understanding that or um, whether you think that's right or not? Well, there's obviously quite a lot of evidence that social
0: mobility hurts the people left behind. <laughs> there's there's uh, less evidence on whether it benefits the people who, who move. But I think what, what is clear um, in the British case uh, is that we have paid far too little attention to maintaining and supporting existing communities yeah. and the cuts in local government finance have been just so counterproductive yeah. and i I think that unless we can get much more vibrant local government going um, we, we won't regenerate the sense of pride in in especially in these towns medium-sized
1: towns um, that
0: make life Really fun.
1: Where, where's the uh, 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 Sweden and places like that? Those are the places. Yes, that, uh, as
0: between countries, um, the Scandinavian countries always come out top, um, and then uh, the, the Netherlands, Switzerland. Um, these are places in which communities are very much stronger, um, where trust is very much stronger, and that's one of the the big. Features that explains the difference between societies. I mean, we've tended to be talking about differences between individuals. Differences between societies uh, are very much affected by trust, the quality of, affected by the quality of government, uh, levels of corruption. They're affected obviously by personal free- differences in personal freedom, but also differences in in in, in generally in the pro-social uh, ethic. Um, <coughs> Uh, and, and of course, income and, and health.
1: We've talked a bit about how happiness on the governmental level and what governments can do and uh, interventions and so forth. Just finally, can we talk a little bit about what individuals can do in order to make themselves <laughs> that's make wanted, themselves That's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I think that um, there are two things which I think are really, really, really important. Um, the first is that we, we really do need to accept, well, I, I think it's a part of the, the happiness revolution, um, that we are not totally victims, uh, that we are uh, able to take control of our mental life. I think that is something which we absolutely need to learn. Uh, different ways of learning it, you can learn it from Western positive psychology um you can learn it from eastern mindfulness um meditation or even maybe spiritual forms of yoga and so on these these are i think people most most people need some form of mental uh, self self self-education and and even even practice um on a regular basis to lead really really good inner lives
1: and And the but, practice of that is making space some sense of sense of yes silence set, set, a,
0: set some time aside absolutely yeah, yeah 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 but but think of think of your inner life as something that you have to cultivate, and in particular, of course, that you have to cultivate your your inner core um this is not a, not quite a concept from c b t at all but um i I have been very struck recently reading the book about Eddie Hill, I don't know if you've read it, who was a a Jewish lady in uh, Amsterdam during the war. Um, And she she knew she was going to die. She decided there was no point trying to um, escape um, because it would only make you frightened. Uh, So she wasn't going to be frightened and she wasn't going to hate. And what she was going to do was to preserve her... Her own inner self the, the 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 best part of herself she was just going to preserve it and I think that's that 's a good a goodish thing for each of us to do to 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 to, to devote energy to preserving the best part of yourself that 's one thing, but <clears throat> obviously the other thing is what you can do for other people and and how you can organize your life so as to um, have as its purpose creating more happiness for others um, and get your meaning from that. Um, I think that's very important. Um, But I think all of this is quite difficult to do just on your own or with the aid of your iPad. Um, And that's why um, some of us have founded this movement called Action for Happiness, which which gets people together in groups um, with well well structured materials r- on a regular basis, um, to reflect on uh, the basic um, issues uh, I- in life of the kind that we 've been talking about today um,
1: uh, and to take action as a result of it yeah i 'm just thinking about the example you gave about the woman in uh, the Jewish woman. Uh, who decided that her approach to the the Nazis coming and what she imagined to be her forthcoming death was to to sort of calm her inner life mm. and uh, and uh, not to hate? My reaction in those exact circumstances, or I hope my reaction would be, sod the happiness! I'm going to go out and kill the bastards. <laughs> no, I mean. I'm making a serious point there, which is that actually there's two very different sort of, like, I guess, ways of looking at human life, one of which is your own... You know, your happiness is a a part of your own project that it's right for you to manage and take responsibility for. The other is to go, that's just so unimportant in situations like this. There's things that I just have to go and do. Well, no, she did. She was very active.
0: She, She... Joined the Jewish Council, um, which all which managed these intermediate staging uh, camps in the Netherlands, and she apparently was a sort of radiant presence there and admired everybody. So she was a very very active social worker. So no, <clears throat> obviously you you should do what you can do, but that that was what she could do. And I just wanted to say a bit more about this question of the sort of secular religion, because I do think that um, fewer and fewer people are going to be able to uh, accept the creed, um, and you know if we want to want to have a moral basis of society, there's got to be secular organisations that provide it.
1: Churches are often, irrespective of whether you believe in what they believe in, they're often rather good delivery. Systems yes. for um, public ethics and, uh, you know, sort of narrative ethics as well and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're very diverse. Mm. Uh, they, they're, they're good at theatre and all those sorts of things which can help us to develop habits of moral thinking and so forth like that. Right. But with, with that all, with, with those sorts of places uh, disappearing and not really having an equivalent to replace them with, that, just in your terms, that, that might well be a, a sort of worry about where are the places we go to together now to do, to sort of imagine what sort of world we want to live in.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I think um, the use of buildings is an issue. We could come back to that. But I think it, it, it is crucial that people um, go on, as they have done through the centuries, meeting together regularly to be. To regain their sense of perspective which you get i mean that's the first thing that happens <laughs> when you go into a church you sort of regain your sense of perspective, and you you realize that all your little worries are really
1: uh, exactly uh, right not yeah. big worries but yeah
0: trivial worries compared with the great greatness of 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 the universe and the great um efforts being made by people all over the world um so there's the sense of perspective, and, there, and then there's the inspiration of what are the, what are the things, the ideas that are going to inspire you, um, uh, instead of your little worries, um, and I think that the church had all, all many very good ideas. It provided materials week by week. <laughs> um, so that's what Action for Happiness is doing, is providing materials actually month by month. You know, I see. And, and, As a lectionary. And, and also day by day. <laughs> yes, by yes, day yes. Um, yes. Mainly month by month. Um, so you've got a sort of annual cycle of of ideas. Um, and uh, then you've got um, associated with them the issue of what kind of things can you do differently. Uh, and in our meetings, um, having discussed, you know, the, the ideas and how relevant they are to you uh, people go on to discuss what are we going to do as a result and when they meet next they, they discuss what did you do and did it make a difference didn't it and that, so they learn about how to lead a good life essentially collectively and I think we 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 really desperately need organisations like this for people who can no longer go to the regular um services of religious organisations. God, God is a better... It,
1: ma- I mean, just in, in purely... This is not a theological point. This is a sociological point in a way, I guess, is that God feels like a better meta-narrative than happiness to do that.
0: No, so, I think the happiness uh-huh. of other people is a terrific narrative. And it, it, I think it's much more inspiring. But God, it hasn't proved, uh, God, it hasn't I mean, proved I'm interested. strong enough you, to bring you, people together. You, you and I find the idea of God uplifting Uh, i still do but um for most young people it doesn't really speak to them at all it it doesn't and and, and i don't believe it's going to because they are the scientific generation and they don't believe this is the west by the way we're talking about the west West. they don't they don't believe in miracles they don't believe in the resurrection or uh, ascension or or the afterlife, in particular, they don't believe in the afterlife. They're, they're in a completely different world from where people were a hundred years ago. This, this is the biggest, but the secular this is a far ch- more the, important but, change.
1: Yes, but Richard, the secular church, the whole that's been experimented with. You talked about you talked about a little bit of those experimentations going on earlier on. You know, the the, the idea of that you could come together for some sort of uh, secular meeting house and the the. the the non religious church type of thing those things have been tried time and again, and they 've never worked i mean they 've they 've never managed to sustain they themselves. you 're
0: right they haven 't taken off i mean you 're talking about well the Unitarian movement and then the ethical society these these yeah. kind of things they haven 't taken off I think they haven't they still haven 't found the format i think we 're trying to find the format in action for happiness. Are you in the same tradition as
1: them, would you say?
0: I would have thought so, yeah. yes. They
1: haven't taken off.
0: You're absolutely right. They, they of course, were not blessed with the buildings. I, I would like to see um, things like action and happiness being given space um, in church halls or even in the, the, the sort of, nave of naves of churches um, because I think that you know the church is the custodian of this amazing physical... Infrastructure which it should use to enable people of all kinds to find their, 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 their path to the good life.
1: Lord Loud, it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much well, indeed. Thank, thank, thank you. you very much indeed. No, uh, had, well, I feel I lot. could talk a lot more uh, about these things and uh, very stimulating. Uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to well, us thank, about everything. Thank you, too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website unheard.com.